Welcome to the final episode of this series of Reverberate. I'm Chris Michael, and as you know, I've been telling stories from around the world about when music sparked a moment. They were dressed in long gowns, and the way they stood on on the stage, they each had a letter on the the hem of their gown that spelled out UFO, Unidentified Flying Object. They had a wooden flying saucer suspended from the ceiling. They had big sort of cigar-like balloons that that were from the floor to the ceiling made, made of transparent plastic. Brian Eno once said, The Velvet Underground didn't sell many records, but everyone who bought one went out and started a band. Well, in the late 60s, you'd be forgiven for thinking that many of those lived in Prague. On the right night at the right venue, you could almost believe that you were actually in New York with the Velvets and Andy Warhol in the next room. And that was particularly the case with one seminal band, the Plastic People of the Universe. This is Paul Wilson. He would go on to be one of the key members of the band. But at the time, he was just a Canadian teacher with an eye for adventure. In 1966, Paul had been doing an MA in Swinging London when his attention was piqued by an article about what was happening in this even weirder Eastern European city. There was a festival of Czech New Wave films, and uh, I went to see all the films, uh, some of them several times. I was fascinated by how strange these films were and how I thought I understood what was going on but really didn't. The films of Milos Forman and the Czech New Wave were full of strange allegories about, for example, renting a cat from an agency or supermarket workers hired to keep an eye on the customers. Paul was also drawn by the cultural atmosphere of Czechoslovakia more generally. Like the films, it seemed familiar, but he couldn't quite read it. And one of the most striking things was, there was I think the Observer magazine on the weekend had a two-page spread picture of young people with long hair carrying guitars striding across Charles Bridge. Clearly something radical was happening here. How was it that the people of Prague were defying the stereotype of life in a grey, strictly controlled communist country? One night at a pub, Paul bumped into a couple of Czechs visiting London. At that point, I was fairly far left, or at least I thought I was. So we, we argued about, you know, the, the virtues of their country, and I said, look, the life in your country doesn't look too bad. According to the movies, there's a lot of strange stuff going on, very Kafka-esque. So they, they said, you've got to come and see for yourself. So why don't you come and visit? Never one to do things by halves, Paul actually moved to Czechoslovakia. It was the summer of 1967. I arrived by bus early in the morning, and uh, I remember driving through the streets of Prague and seeing a very dirty, kind of gloomy city uh, with a lot of scaffolding around a lot of the buildings. And my first impression of the intellectual or the mental sort of atmosphere of, of the city was that it was so, so something was happening. Just by the, by the signage and by the, the number of concerts that were on, I noticed there were an awful lot of posters for something called Big Beat, And uh, I, I asked people what that is. Well, that's rock and roll. It's just that's what we call it here. We call it Big Beat. 
there seemed to be an awful lot of bands. It wasn't just the music scene that was loosening up. The process of de-Stalinization had taken longer in Czechoslovakia than elsewhere in the Eastern Bloc. But by 1967, writers were beginning to stretch their wings. Some even wildly suggested that literature should be independent of Communist Party doctrine. As the 1960s progressed and things gradually opened up, the kind of greater freedom that allowed them to make the movies that they made and the greater freedom that allowed the writers to publish stuff that they had not been able to publish up until that point also allowed these bands to start playing. This period would reach its peak with the so-called Prague Spring of 1968, a kind of watershed few months when the Czech people rose up to demand change. A new president, Alexander Dubček, was loosening restrictions on the media, free speech, and travel, aiming to create what he called a socialism with a human face. But the challenge was how to do this while still remaining behind the Iron Curtain, a paid-up member of the international communist movement, led by the USSR. The promise seemed to be that they were going to create some kind of form of socialism that was actually you know, genuinely democratic. What was really happening was that the Communist Party was desperately trying to hang on to power. The best the reform communists felt they could do would be to open the party up to uh, influence from, from the outside and, and below, but they were not prepared to give up their absolute power. Dubček's gamble was to give his people more freedom while appeasing his ultimate masters, the Soviets. Brezhnev was no Stalin, but still. The threat posed by the idea of a free press operating anywhere inside the Soviet bloc was too great. Something had to give. When it did, Paul was on holiday. A couple of friends of mine came over to visit and we decided to go to Yugoslavia because the beaches there are fantastic and the sea is great. And so we we took this side trip to Yugoslavia in the middle of August. And in Split, which is in Croatia, we arrived early in the morning by bus There were little groups of people standing around listening to transistor radios, and they were speaking Czech. So I went up to them and I said, what's going on? And they said, you haven't heard? We've been invaded by the Russians. And it wasn't just the Russians. It was an invasion of Warsaw Pact forces. Tanks, airplanes, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers uh, came flowing across the border and uh, tried to shut things down. It was a full-scale military invasion, and very few shots were fired. It was not a bloody invasion. It was just a kind of an overwhelming takeover. The Prague Spring had been snuffed out after just seven months. Dubček was gone. Paul had to wait a week before a train even ran back to Prague. The first train that actually went back to Prague was, I think, four or five days after the invasion, and I got on that train against the advice of my friends who said, you're not going to go back into a war zone. I said, I, I, I have to go back. And most of the kind of excitement of the first few days of the invasion was over. I arrived back in uh, uh, the main station around midnight and walked out, and uh, there was nobody on the streets because there was martial law. With Dubček gone, full media censorship was back. Alternative voices were forced underground, and a new covert cultural scene was born. Artists became dissidents almost by definition. One night, Paul went to a gig that would change his life. I was more impressed with their stagecraft than I was with their music. They were dressed in long gowns, 
they each had a letter on the, the hem of their, their gown that spelled out UFO. They had a wooden flying saucer suspended from the ceiling. They had big sort of cigar-like balloons that they were from the floor to the ceiling made of transparent plastic. They had fires burning in these big ashtrays. They were called the Plastic People of the Universe. And their gigs were less like regular rock concerts and more like Warhol's happenings at the factory in New York. This was all the handiwork of the band's artistic director, Ivan Yuros, also known as Martin Yuros. Yuros was a crucial figure in the Czech underground. The playwright Tom Stoppard has described him as a rock and roll magus, a brave spirit whose life testified that culture is politics. As a fierce opponent of the communists, Yuros was banned from writing. And he had to work odd jobs as a night watchman or a gardener to avoid the crime of being out of work. He was regularly thrown in jail anyway for organizing gigs, or disturbing the peace, as it was called by the authorities. They hadn't learned to play together very, very well. They hadn't, you know, they were, it was, it was, it was okay. Uh, and I said this to Ivan Yuros, I said, uh, I said, this is like amateur theater time. And he got very pissed off at me and said, uh, you don't understand. It's not about the quality of the playing. It's about the fact that they are playing at all. That's important. Again, Paul was in the right place at the right time. The band needed someone to sing in English. And Euros offered him the job. This new version of the group wanted to write songs inspired by Western groups like the Fugs and the Velvets. And Paul helped bridge this cultural gap. I think I had mixed feelings about it because I wasn't uh, that confident in my own skills as a guitarist or as a, as a singer. But Euros was very persuasive. It was almost as though I were being dragooned into it. And I decided that I knew we were headed for trouble, but it was the kind of trouble that I wasn't afraid of. I mean, you know, you can get in trouble for a lot of stupid things. This didn't seem like a stupid thing. Paul sounds quite casual about it, but this was no small act of bravery. Here he was, in a strange new land, putting himself out there as the frontman of a band that was openly defying the apparatchiks. He couldn't know what was coming around the corner. My father was a professor at Charles University. He, uh, he taught history of philosophy, and uh, he was one of those men of the Prague Spring 1968. So as a result of it, he was kicked out of the uh, university in 1969 and became one of those dissidents of the 1970s. And so, of course, my life uh, as a teenager was influenced by this fact. This is Martin Makovets. He's now a literary critic and academic in Prague. But back then, he was a teenager, growing up on the dissident scene and hanging around with the literary freaks and musical geeks. The plastic people were a little older than him, and he looked up to them. They never wanted to comply with the demands of the regime. And so doing this, they sooner or later had to get into conflict, into trouble with, uh, let's say, the police uh, and with people, actually, because the way they looked was suspicious. Believe it or not, to be allowed to perform in public, musicians had to audition in front of a government jury, like a Communist Party version of X Factor. You gave the panel a list of your songs, they asked you to play a couple, then they deliberated and told you whether or not you could have a license. Without a license, you couldn't earn a living as a musician. 
all of these musicians, well, uh, not only rock musicians, jazz musicians, all of them in the early 1970s, they were recommended, not demanded, but recommended to cut their hair, to sing only Czech songs, to uh, stop singing English lyrics, perhaps were also to include some of those Soviet pop music examples, whatever. And the plastic people, they came to the board and they played their music without any compromise, so they played what they played on stage. The members of the panel were shocked. They even pretended not to understand the English lyrics. As you can imagine, the Plastics were denied their license to perform as a band. So Euros got creative. So uh, he devised a system whereby uh, he would drop contracts with people who uh, sponsored their concerts. He'd be paid for giving a lecture on art, or they would be paid for their scenography, they called it, the balloons, the fire, the, the spotlights, you know, they charge people for that. The so-called lecture would last a few minutes, and then the plastic people would demonstrate the songs of the Velvet Underground for a couple of hours. Songs like I'm Waiting for the Man and Sunday Morning. The authorities eventually got wise and cancelled the shows. But the plastics kept finding new, ingenious ways to play gigs. For example, Unlicensed music was allowed at weddings, so several members of the group actually got legally married as an excuse for a show. One divorced couple even agreed to remarry just so the Plastics could be their wedding band. But soon, of course, the police spies found out about this strategy, so to say. They couldn't possibly tolerate this. Altogether, there were not too many people, about several hundred present at every of these concerts or gigs. But of course, they had much more massive support among the young of the early 1970s. So there would be thousands and thousands who would be, so to say, spoiled through the eyes of the regime. Then police started showing up at gigs and, and carting people. So that they were, they were drawing a map of what bands were playing and who was coming to the gigs. And it was a, it was a long process that went on for a couple of years, and, and it got more and more intense. For those of you who remember the way secret raves were set up in the 90s, these guys pioneered the technique. To evade the authorities, they'd only announce a meeting point at the last minute. Everyone would then have to walk, sometimes for miles, to barns and farm buildings deep in the countryside. Around this time, Paul Wilson convinced the group to start singing in Czech, and he handed over the vocal duties. In Paul's eyes, this was the moment the Plastic People became a Czech band, especially when they started incorporating the subversive lyrics of the dissident poet Egon Bondi. And I think the combination of singing in Czech and singing these slightly subversive, sometimes very subversive poems, added to their, the threat that they presented to the regime, or the threat that they presented to the face that the regime wanted to present to the world, right? Bondi's printed work had been banned by the government. He could publish his poetry as Samizdat, that is to say, self-printed literature only circulated covertly, but in his lyrics for The Plastic People, he could say whatever he liked. One of their unusual songs was Magic Nights, a song setting a poem by Bondi about his feeling for Prague as a place where strange things happen, things bordering on magic and mystery. To Paul, the song vividly conveys the allure of the city that had drawn him there in the first place. 
Prague was a city of, of alchemists in earlier centuries. And even under communism, this sort of odd spirit of the place was still alive. So the opening lines are magic nights. Take us back to the beginning of time. And then the, the chorus is, we live in Prague. That is where the spirit itself will one day appear. In the 1970s, when, when I was here, there was definitely, it was a gloomy place. But the gloom was kind of rich in innuendo and, you know. And so that song tries to capture that. I had a student who, we were going on a walk one day, we walked across uh, the Charles Bridge or some other bridge, and we're looking at the panorama of Prague, and she said to me, she said, you know, the communists can be really happy that the city is so beautiful that it makes people forget where they live and under what kind of regime they live. And, and that song, Magic Nights, kind of captures that. Against the odds, the plastic people were somehow managing to survive the authorities' attempts to muzzle them. Their songs were more seditious than ever. And now other bands were starting to pop up out of the woodwork. So this underground grew at its peak. There were probably 12 bands who considered themselves underground bands and who performed with us or who knew us. And they were from other parts of the country. Not just Prague now, but Pilsen and from the north. That was part of the reason why we came up more frequently on the police radar, because they, they now realized that they had a kind of movement on their hands. In February 1976, the underground came together for a big festival with 10 bands on the bill. There was a big concert in Cheske Budjevice, which is a large city south of Prague. Uh, the plastic people were scheduled to play, and people came from all over the country to this festival. So then the plastic people and their friends sort of triumphed. I remember one of them said, well, now nothing is going to stop us. You know, communists are, are finished. Well, how bitterly mistaken. <laughs> the mayor of the town, I think it was the mayor, some town official, called in not just the police, but he called in the border guards, the army, and they descended on, on the city and drove... The kids who had come for this concert drove them to the main station with nightsticks and, and dogs, and they beat them and loaded them on, on, onto trains, photographed them, fingerprinted them, booked them. They called it the, the Cheske Budjevice massacre. It wasn't a massacre because no one died, but there was a lot of very heavy violence, a lot of blood was shed. It was at that point that some people started going to jail for the band. These were fans, not people in, in the band. We've all been to the odd punk gig where you come out feeling bruised. But the idea of actually being beaten up by the police just for attending a concert is another thing entirely. At the same time, another movement was facing police brutality, the intellectual resistance. A leading light among them was a young playwright named Václav Havel. Havel's plays were circulating as samizdat across the country. But he also had many connections with writers, academics, and politicians outside of the country. Havel had heard about the plastic people, but while the underground music scene had caused a stir, they ran in a separate crowd from the intellectual dissidents. So he arranged to meet Ivan Yeros, who was basically his equivalent figure in the Czech music scene. 
And so they, they got together one night. Euros played them, you know, the tapes that, that existed of the Plastic People and of other bands. I think Havel read him a letter to Husak, and uh, they went from somebody's studio to a hotel run by a guy who was a friend of ours, and uh, he closed the hotel, opened the bar, and they spent the whole night there talking and getting together. But the net was closing in. Two weeks later, the arrests began. At that get-together, Euros invited Havel to come to the next underground concert. Havel agreed that he was going to show up, but it never happened. And it turned out that the friend who worked in the hotel and locked the door and opened this space for them to have this conversation was an, an informer of the secret police. He was also a friend of mine. I mean, imagine one of your friends doing that to you. This so-called mate of Paul's had betrayed Euros. Then he tried to entrap Paul, too. I learned about the arrests, which began two weeks after that, two or three weeks after that, because he phoned me up and said, they've just arrested the underground. And so I said, let's not talk about it on, on the phone. Let's get together. And I get, got together. I think that the reason why he phoned me up was they wanted to know, the police wanted to know how I was, how I was going to respond to that. Paul didn't take the bait, but the plastic people were still screwed. They were arrested for, quote, organized disturbance of the peace. The official indictment accused their lyrics of, again, quote, extreme vulgarity with an anti-socialist and an anti-social impact, most of them extolling nihilism, decadence, and clericalism, whatever that is. But the regime's attempt to silence the underground only ended up making its voice louder. Václav Havel and the country's other dissident writers showed up at the courthouse. The regime had tried to keep its opponents divided, but now, here they all were, in the lobby of the court building, together. I was there, and, and you could see, uh, you know, long-haired underground musicians and philosophers and writers all sort of hanging out together and talking together, right? The regime is all about keeping people apart, isolating people. And here was an incident that the regime had created a situation in which these two separate forces somehow came together and began to talk to each other and devise strategies for going forward. These trials weren't trials in the sense that we'd know them. There's no doubt. It was a, they were political trials. And now we've got the evidence that uh, the leadership of the Communist Party and the uh, Minister of, the, of Interior of, of, those, of those days uh, simply sent the order what the sentences should be. So they were show trials. It was classic kangaroo court stuff. The Minister of the Interior simply contacted the court to tell them what the sentence should be, regardless of the case. But for the plastic people, the outcome actually wasn't quite that simple. The trials sparked international outrage. Amnesty International even got involved. So the Czechoslovak regime was quite surprised, unpleasantly surprised by this support, because they hoped that they would simply try these guys and sentence them, and the public will be only satisfied because they were presented as a, as a gang of vulgar, filthy hippies, you know, drug addicts, of course, alcoholics. It became a kind of a, a cause celebre, if you like, uh, because various writers wrote letters of support for the pl plastic people. And what the dissidents discovered was that because of the international outcry and, and because they themselves now spoke up, not on behalf of themselves, but on behalf of these unknown musicians, 
There were 19 people altogether arrested, and only seven were brought to trial. So that was the first success, if you like. And secondly, instead of getting 10 years and 15 years, they, the, the highest sentence, I think, was, was 18 months. So that was a huge success. And the dissidents realized it was time for the writers, for the intellectual dissidents, to come out of their shell and start defending other people and taking greater risks. And that's what happened. On September 21st, 1976, the four Plastic People defendants sat in the dock, handcuffed, expecting the worst. But they were about to be surprised. Instead of getting 10 years and 15 years, they, the, the highest sentence, I think, was, was 18 months. So that was a huge success. And they realized, the, the dissidents realized, it was time for intellectual dissidents to come out of their shell and start defending other people and taking greater risks. And that's what happened. It was a turning point. Thanks to the trials, Czechoslovakia's intellectual dissidents were now in league with the musical underground for the first time. It had backfired spectacularly on the authorities. Rather than pouring water on the underground fire, they'd sprayed it with lighter fluid. Everyone understood that an attack on the Czech musical underground was an attack on a most elementary important thing. It was an attack on the very notion of living within the truth on the real aims of life. So it only aroused more interest on the side of the younger guys who were, let's say, 13, 14, 15 years old. And I remember then some of these people who became my friends later on told me, when I heard that on Czech, Czechoslovak TV, I told my father, oh, I want to become a guy like that, you know? And so that was something counterproductive. The dominoes started to fall. Perhaps the trial's biggest impact was what became known as Charter 77. This was a human rights manifesto written by a group of dissidents, including Paul. It criticized the government for failing to implement the freedoms of travel, expression, movement, and association to which it had committed under the Helsinki Accords. Signing this was a big deal. It meant going against the government— and ruining your chances of having a professional career or getting into university. We, that is the signatories of Charter 77, would like to act as monitors for how well the regime is, is obeying its own laws. And of course, there was hell to pay. Initially, 200 and something like 90 people signed this. And it doesn't seem like a lot, but the regime reacted with, I can only describe it as, as kind of controlled hysteria. Uh, there were arrests, there were house searches, there were interrogations, there were people went to jail. But the musical underground hadn't forgotten the kindness of the intellectuals. They remembered how they'd stood up for them at the trial. Now it was their turn to repay the debt. So they joined forces again and signed the charter. Charter 77, which incorporated, so to say, the major part of the underground community. So then, of course, it's obvious that in this way, the underground community of those crazy rock musicians helped bring Czechoslovak society to Velvet Revolution. They call it the Velvet Revolution because it was nonviolent, soft like Velvet. Over the next 12 years, dissent became more commonplace in Czechoslovakia. 
Petitions were spread, bands played publicly, and more and more students showed up every day in Wenceslas Square to protest police brutality. They were soon joined by other Czech citizens, playwrights, actors, and musicians, including the entire Czech Philharmonic Orchestra, until they were 300,000 strong. Eventually, on the 9th of November, 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. Events race forward. The entire cabinet resigned. Then, on the 19th of December, 1989, Václav Havel was elected president of Czechoslovakia. Soviet troops departed within months. Okay, so here we are in Wenceslas Square. Uh, we're kind of almost at the middle of it. It's not a square, it's a big long, it's more like the Champs-Élysées, uh, but shorter. And uh, one day in November 1989, I was standing more or less where we are standing now, listening to Havel speak, surrounded by, I don't know, what, three quarters of a million people, or however many people you can get in this big square. So they came up with a cabinet to replace the communist cabinet, and there were some communist members in it. They announced the, the communist cabinet from the balcony, and the whole square erupted in booze. He said, bad idea, back to the drawing board. So that was a, a moment when, when the street actually kind of had, had a voice, had influence. And, and you know, I was told by, by Václav Havel's brother, Ivan, that they would do that deliberately. They would, they would bring an idea to the, to the balcony here, and a million people would say yay or nay. Direct democracy, can't beat it. It's amazing to trace this incredible moment back to that group of oddball musicians wearing UFO gowns, playing on stage with balloons and flying saucers. The plastic people saw the Velvet Revolution end the 41-year grip of communism on their country. In 1993, Czechoslovakia peacefully dissolved into Slovakia and the Czech Republic. Charter 77 had gone from being a document to a movement, to an official opposition, to power. All of it because a group of musicians, the plastic people and their friends, had stood up to the authorities. I first got to know the story of the plastics through my old friend Jake Wilson, Paul's son. A couple of years ago, we visited Prague to see his mother Helena, a photographer who documented the time. Together, we went to see an exhibition on Charter 77 in downtown Prague, where Helena's photos were on display. Amid the candid snaps of the plastic people, Václav Havel and the rest, was one amazing photograph of the Charter 77 signatories back then. It shows a group of about 20 people in Prague, gathered on the flagstones with long hair and bohemian clothing. Paul Wilson stands at the far right smoking a cigarette. And you can't tell whether they're political dissidents or a really big rock band. Reverberate is created and presented by me, Chris Michael. The producers of this episode were Ian Chambers and Rose DeLiarbidi. The executive producer is Peter Sale. And the lead producer for Guardian Podcasts is Max Sanderson. Original music and sound design is by Pascal Wise. And music rights clearance was by Tony Orkadesh of Torchlight Music. The development executive producers were Shanita Scotland and Catherine Godfrey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>